Hey there, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of the Movie Brewer podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Scott Willis, and this is the podcast where we talk not just about movies, but the stories behind actually getting them made. 2017's Baby Driver, directed by Edgar Wright, is as much a music video as it is a movie. And it's the realization of a career's worth of planning and a career's worth of positioning on Wright's part. The initial inspiration came to him all the way back in 1995 and grew and grew in the back of his mind until production began in 2016. But before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead. This is the Movie Brewer Podcast. Our beer today is Wheels Goes Around by Left Hand Brewing. And yes, that's pronounced Goza. I looked it up. Left Hand Brewing is based in Longmount, Colorado, and was founded back in 1994 by Air Force buddies Eric Wallace and Dick Dore. I would say these days they're probably best known for their nitro beers. You, you may see them in your, in your local store with their Sawtooth Nitro or their Milk Stout Nitro. But they do do other beers. This one, like I said, is a Goza. And part of the mentality of Left Hand Brewing is to not just make great beer, but also push the limits and focus on being more than a brewery. Uh, they want to be part of a community as well. Wheels Goes Around is brewed with the intention of raising money and awareness for multiple sclerosis, specifically through the Bike MS charity rides that they do. The wheel in this case is a bicycle wheel. And they to date have raised over $3.5 million dollars in these charity rides and through brewing this beer. The wheels goes around itself. The beer is, as I said, obviously a Goza, uh, which is a, usually a warm fermented beer that doesn't have a, a really strong hop taste to it, like a lot of beers that I uh, review on this podcast. Usually we're looking more at like a lemon sourness, usually a, a bit of a salty taste. This one itself is a lemon raspberry brew, about 4.4 uh, ABV. And it looks like we're looking at CTZ hops in there. We're advised to drink this out of a tulip glass. So that's what I've got here. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and take a sip. Hey, aren't you proud of me for not drinking another double IPA on this podcast? I'm, a, I'm growing. So that lemon sour smell fills the booth pretty quickly. This beer is pretty light, uh, a nice red pinkish color, not a lot of head, maybe about a finger's worth, uh, very large bubbles, if that makes sense in the head. A lot of it seems like a foam. This seems more like carbonation. As I said, the smell is, is very potent. As, you know, I, I tend to think most sours are. And I'm going to go ahead and take a sip here. Wow, that's like drinking a raspberry. The lemon's in there. I can feel it. But, man, that is a very raspberry forward goza. But also very drinkable. Uh, you know, a lot of these sours these days kind of tend to punch your teeth in and kind of make you, make you grimace. But this one is... Very light, still very drinkable, and uh, I'm I'm gonna 
enjoy this. Yeah, I just took a lengthy pause here because I really don't have a transition. So we're going to go ahead and start talking about Baby Driver. Something with wheels. How about that for a transition? So as always, I'm going to start off with a brief synopsis of the film. Uh, I'm assuming, of course, if you're listening to this, that you've seen it. If not, please, 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 please go out and get it. It's it's such a good movie. Um, but let's start it out. <clears throat> Baby, played by Ainsel Engort, is the best getaway driver in the business and has the best soundtracks to drive through. After repaying criminal mastermind Doc, played by Kevin Spacey, Baby thinks he's free of his criminal life. Things start looking up when he meets an equally musically inclined waitress named Deborah, played by Lilla James. But their budding relationship is threatened when Doc pulls Baby in for one last job. A job that'll need every move he's got if he's going to make it to his happily ever after. So this film has a long, long history. As I said at the top, Edgar Wright first had the idea for this film way, way back in 1995. And this was before he was an established filmmaker of any capacity. He was 21 years old, living in London. And he listened to the song Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion and just had this initial thought that it would be a cool backdrop to a car chase and imagined what would eventually become the opening scene of this film of a getaway driver sitting outside a bank waiting for the rest of the team to come out and jamming out to Bell Bottoms while he waited. And the idea really germinated from there. It eventually evolved further into like, okay, yes, there's like a car chase going on, chasing people through the streets. Uh, it was back then, it was the streets of London because he was living and working in London. And then in 2003, so a solid eight years later, to give you a sense of scope here, uh, he cannibalized that idea into a music video for the band Mint Royal and their track Blue Song. That whole setup that we just discussed is essentially how that music video plays out. It focuses on a getaway driver waiting for his crew and jamming out to the song as he waits. The getaway driver is played by Noel Fielding, uh, who you either know from The Great British Bake Off or The IT Crowd or possibly as Old Greg. When he was making the music video, Wright didn't really like taking the idea initially. He thought it was kind of cannibalizing what he had in his head, but it would later serve as a proof of concept for Baby Driver, as a lot of the same ideas are in both. From there, as he was going through his career, he was always adding songs to his Baby Driver playlist over time. He would always have an ear out for a Baby Driver song, which he describes as something that has an interesting shift or change in either the melody or the tempo or the, you know, rhythm. And he would put it in his playlist. By the time he actually sat down to write the film out, he had about 10 songs earmarked, uh, including Bell Bottoms, which we talked about, uh, Neat, Neat, Neat by The Damned, Hocus Pocus by Focus, and of course, the ultimate killer song, Brighton Rock by Queen. That time where he sat down to write it didn't actually come until 2011. Uh, he had had several different projects throughout his career, as I was saying, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, all of which incidentally have hints of the style that he's sort of finding on his way towards Baby Driver. So he has an initial table read of his original script in 2012 with various actors 
Edgar Wright is well known for working at great lengths with with his dear friends. But most importantly in there, and I'll come back to this later, uh, John Hamm reads for the part of Buddy in that initial table read. That table read is recorded and edited with the music intended to it and sound effects. And Wright kind of finds himself with almost a radio show of this film and continues to build on that sort of proof of concept that he's constructing around this film. Around this same time, he raps on the third of the Cornetto trilogy, The World's End, combining that with the creative differences that he was having with the project he had lined up next, it seemed like he might be coming up at a good time for this film to take shape. That film that he had coming up next was supposed to be Marvel's Ant-Man, but as I said, due to creative differences, he ended up leaving that project and opened the doors for Baby Driver. So he uses that initial radio show as a sort of baseline to start prepping and storyboarding out the scenes of this film to the music that he wants for it. He works very closely from the very beginning with lead editor Paul Machlis to create a series of animatics over every beat of the film. An animatic is essentially a video representation of storyboards. So not as complex as an animated film, but keyframes set to music with dialogue, if there is any, cut together to sort of give a sense of what the film will feel like once it's actually shot. And at this point, it's important to make the distinction that this is not really a film where the film is cut to the music. It's a film where everything is planned and choreographed around the music. This is all done with severe intention. The animatics became a Bible of how the scenes were going to break down. And from those, he worked heavily with his cast in rehearsals for several, several weeks before the production even started. So with that, I'm going to turn and we're going to talk about the cast here, uh, which is, as it is with so many Edgar Wright films, quite the ensemble. It's fun to note that every script that was sent to these various actors uh, regarding their parts was also sent with an iPod and a playlist with specific songs that should be listened to as they read each part of the script. So we're going to start out, of course, with Ansel Engort, who, when he was writing it, Edgar Wright didn't really have a actor like him in mind for this role. He saw it as a shorter character, someone, he says, uh, more like himself. But as soon as he met with Ansel, he knew that this was the guy. They hit it off immediately. Their entire first meeting they only talked about music. They didn't even talk about any role in the film or anything like that. Ansel Engor is a classically trained dancer, and uh, in his first audition, Wright asked if there was any songs that he could, you know, lip sync off the top of his head, as as Baby so often does in the film. And his answer was easy by the Commodores, which, you know, Edgar Wright thought was a strange answer for a 20-year-old kid. But after seeing it, Wright loved the performance so much that it actually made its way into the final film. It becomes the song that represents a, a light and easy mentality for Baby. Um, we also get, as I said, John Hamm in the role of Buddy. Buddy was the only role written specifically with an actor in mind. John Hamm and Edgar Wright are good friends that go back quite a while. And as I said, he originally read as Buddy in the table read back in 2012. And it was a good time for him, too, because John Hamm had just come off 
of Mad Men, where he had spent several, several years playing Don Draper and was sort of looking for roles that were a counterpoint to that. It was an iconic role for him, but one that he didn't want to be pigeonholed in. After that, we, of course, have Jamie Foxx, who plays Crazy Bats. Fox, a musician himself, was amazed when he read the script and loved how bold Wright was being in the production of it. You know, it's not every day that you read a script that is set almost entirely to music. There's also Kevin Spacey, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him. This was one of the last films that was released before the sexual assault allegations uh, that were raised against him in October of 2017 and caused his career to come to an abrupt end. Um, Suffice it to say that before all that happened, Kevin Spacey was quite the bankable actor. Um, That's all I'll say about that. Moving on from there, we have Lily James as Deborah, uh, love interest to baby. Most likely you would recognize her as Cinderella from Disney's live action remake. John Barthenal is also in there, uh, hot off his role as the Punisher on Netflix's Daredevil and Punisher series. Isaac Gonzalez, uh, who plays Darlin, was recommended by uh, a good friend of Edgar Wright's fellow director, Robert Rodriguez, who had just worked with her on the From Dusk Till Dawn TV show. Uh, And then there's C.J. Jones. C.J. Jones plays Baby's foster father, Joseph. Uh, He is a great comedian and entertainer in his own right, but he's also actually deaf, which is in line with the levels of authenticity that Edgar Wright usually brings to his films. And Jones ended up being a key player uh, in the film in helping not only uh, Anzone learn and uh, improve his sign language for the film, but also to help Wright improve his communication skills. He's quoted as saying, when you have a actor who's reading your lips, you learn to drop all the superfluous words that you say, which I think is interesting. And then the other real part that's worth noting here is there is a laundry list of actual musicians in this film that make varying levels of uh, appearances. Uh, of course, like I said, we have Jamie Foxx, who is a musician in his own right, but also uh, we get Flea, the bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, he plays No Nose Eddie, one of the one of the crew. Big Boy and Killer Mike make an appearance. Sky Ferreira plays Baby's mother, and uh, we even for a hot second there get John Spencer of the John Spencer Blues Explosion as one of the guards towards the end. I suppose is a form of payment for uh, letting Edgar Wright use the song Bell Bottoms in his opening, uh, as he for so long had dreamed of doing. I hinted a moment ago at Edgar Wright's notorious attention to detail. This comes up time and time again with every production that he does, and Baby Driver is no exception. Even down to the script, he consulted with several actual getaway drivers uh, when writing the film, including a man named Joe Loya, who was a bank robber and getaway driver and served seven years in prison uh, in the early 90s for those for those crimes. He offered a lot of important notes of little details that would make the, the heist world seem more uh, authentic. They shot in Atlanta, Georgia. Originally, the script was written in L.A., but tax breaks and ease of shooting moved the production to Atlanta. Uh, this was Edgar Wright's first film actually taking place in the United States. Most all of them have taken place in London, obviously, uh, and of course, 
Scott Pilgrim versus the World is famously hosted in Canada. Georgia has become sort of a hotbed of production in the last 10 years or so. The Georgia state tax credits that are available to film productions are really, I would argue, second to none. I don't have actual numbers in front of me, but all kinds of productions shoot in Atlanta and it is often portrayed as LA or other major metropolitan centers, but I give Edgar Wright props for actually letting Atlanta be Atlanta in this film. Uh, They shot mostly in the downtown center of Atlanta, mostly during the day, uh, which brings on all kinds of further complications, especially considering some of the the crazy driving stunts that they were doing. So the production starts in February of 2016 and runs for four months. And like I said, a lot of this film is some pretty crazy driving stunts. The stunt coordinator is a man named Darren Prescott, who's pretty famous in his own right, also does all of the stunt work for the John Wick movies. And they did all the stunts pretty much for real. It's very easy in films like this to cut to CG to do that crazy car move or just overly use computer graphics to sort of ease the burden of the production. But Edgar Wright is very, very insistent on doing everything practically and in camera, which can drive up the costs. You know, you need to do pretty much everything twice. You need to do the stunt move with the stunt driver who can actually pull off the maneuver adequately and then get the cast in there. And a lot of times the cast in these cars is four separate stars. And doing everything twice just can take time, take budget. And especially if you're locking down sections of, you know, Atlanta highways to do it in the middle of the day, it can, it can be a laborious process, I guess, is what I'm really getting at. But as, as I said, Edgar Wright is notorious for detail. And honestly, with the track record that he has, and this is important to note too, he has a level of power in Hollywood that he can be demanding like that. He has the reputation of delivering excellence whenever he tries to do something. So it's a lot easier for him to put his foot down and stand his ground when he says, hey, I am going to do all of these stunts for real. And yeah, to do these stunts for real, we're going to send Ansel and John Hamm to driving school to make sure that they can do some of the stunts themselves, uh, which they did. Both actors spent several weeks in stunt driving school so that some of the more complex scenes could be done without an actual stunt driver. Shooting like this also really put the animatics to the test. This had been sort of the Bible that they were going off, but keep in mind, it's just, it's really just an animation. If you are doing a complex stunt and it ends up taking 12 seconds, but in your animatic, you only have six seconds there, it can add a lot more challenges in terms of the production. And honestly, uh, the editing and post as well, because you have to still be able to cut around these beats. So the production wraps in May of 2017, goes into post. And as I've been saying, you know, locking into these animatics can provide a lot of challenges, especially when you're cutting all of these things to the beat of the music. Editor Paul Machlis, as I said, had been involved with this film from the very beginning, was a big player in the creation of these animatics and had been on set in Atlanta to make sure that they were capturing everything that they needed and that it would still fit in with the soundtrack and that everything would go according to plan when they got to post, which 
for the most part, they did. There is a scene in the film where Baby rewinds his iPod briefly at the beginning of one of the heists. That is a uh, a clever cut-around technique where they ran into complications with how it would cut together and found an easy insert to put in there to make sure that they still kept their, their beat. But things like that, that kind of extremely intentional editing is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, you know, it, it takes a lot more time on set, but supposedly, theoretically, when you get into posts, you already know how everything is going to be done. So your edit is not as bad, not as complex. I don't know. I will say one thing that was, I don't want to say as bad, but complex, very, very, very complex was not so much the video editing, but the sound design and the sound editing of this film. The sound design and the sound editing on this film is completely out of control. Because keep in mind, not only does it have to be cinematically correct, not only do things have to sound the way they sound, it has to be musically correct. It has to fit in with the beat. It has to fit with the cadence and the uh, the pitch of the music that's playing over it. Every gunshot, every squealing tire, everything is very, very specifically designed. And it's all oriented around Baby's perception of the world. One of the best examples of this is the way the film treats Baby's headphones. It's such a subtle thing here. But in the film, if a character takes one of Baby's earbuds out and puts it in his ear or, you know, knocks it away, whatever, as happens a few times in the film, the music track in either the right or left side of the film drops out simultaneously. So you get only that one ear of music the same way Baby does. And to go even a step further, whenever Baby doesn't have headphones in and his music is taken away, there's a subtle, slight ringing that can be heard that mirrors the effect of his tinnitus and gives us a sense of, of how he feels when he can't drown out the sound. That slight ringing is actually the first thing we hear in the film, and it translates beautifully into the slight squeal of the brakes of the car as it pulls into the first scene. So yeah, it's the the depth and the complexity of both the editing and the sound design of this film is incredible. And if you do, after listening to this episode or before listening to this episode, I don't know if that, I guess you can't be hearing my recommendations before you listen to it for this episode. Watch it with special attention to the sound design and see and hear, I guess, how much depth there really is built in there. All right, so bringing it back here, Baby Driver premieres at South by Southwest on March 11th, 2017. Two rave reviews from both critics and audiences. It it makes the rounds on the festival circuit for, for a little bit and is originally slated for a wide release in mid-August. But in an odd mood, credited really to such a positive review, Sony and TriStar moved the release date up more than a month to June 28th, just in time for 4th of July weekend here in the United States. Uh, it's opening weekend, it does 20.5 million domestically and then actually increases in its second weekend because of the 4th of July to 29.9 million. To this day, it stands at a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and deservedly so. 
it stands as a shining example of Edgar Wright at the top of his game. There's so many of the normal director touches that we love from his previous films on full display here. The long tracking shots in the beginning of a character going to pick something up from a store. The on the beat music is actually something that you see in a lot of his different films. There's the classic Don't Stop Me Now scene from Shaun of the Dead. So much of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And as I said at the top, I consider all of those things just sort of him finding his voice and finding his style that put him in the prime position to make what is quickly becoming a modern classic in terms of movie musicals, I guess. I don't see. I, I, I have an issue with that. I, you can't really call this movie a musical. That definition doesn't do it justice, but it's a damn good film. You could watch it over and over and still pick up on something new. The, the depth to which Edgar Wright makes films is second to very few in the industry today. So that's what I got about Baby Driver. I'm going to bring it back here. We're going to run through our quick facts and then we're going to go back and, and, and talk a little bit more about my wheels goes around, which I am now on my second can of. So hooray. Uh, the Michael Myers masks were originally actually supposed to be masks from the famous horror villain, but they were unable to get the rights to that, to that, um, which is an odd thing to think about getting the rights for. So Edgar Wright called the real Mike Myers uh, of Austin Power Fames and asked if they'd be fine with him using his likeness for this film, to which uh, he he heartily agreed. And and there you go; it's one of the better gags in the film. Monsters, Inc. has a small clip shown in the film when Baby's watching TV uh, for a moment there. And this is the first time that a Disney animated movie clip has appeared in an R-rated film. Uh, Monsters, Inc. director and now Pixar chief creative officer Peter Docter went to bat for Wright uh, and his discussions with the House of Mouse to, to see if he could secure the rights for this and really convince them that the scene fit perfectly in the film and wasn't defamatory in any capacity or anything like that. In total, 36 songs were licensed for this film and most of them were written before they ever started shooting. There's one, I believe, that Edgar Wright nixed just because he'd listened to it far too many times. The film was nominated for three Academy Awards Best Achievement in Film Editing for, for Paul Machlis and his uh, his second editor, Jonathan Amos. Uh, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing for Tim Cavendish, Mary Ellis, and Julian Slater. And Best Achievement in Sound Editing for Julian Slater. Uh, it opened number two at the box office on June 28th, 2017, just behind Despicable Me 3. It was the 31st highest grossing film of 2017, with 107.8 million domestic total. The number one film that year was Star Wars The Last Jedi. To that 107.8 million domestic, you add 119 million international, and you end up with a gross total box office of 226.9 million, far above the budget of $34 billion. And that'll bring us home. I'm going to come back, as I always do, to my wheels goes around. And this is aging really nicely. As I said, I've opened my second one here. It's very easy to drink, very quick to drink. Honestly, doesn't feel like you're drinking alcohol really at all. It feels like a nice summer 
beverage. I feel like I should be sitting out on a on a porch with the sun in my face. Um, it has warmed a little bit, but hasn't lost any of the taste really. And I don't know. I really, I really give a shout out to Left Hand Brewing for making a fantastic beer um, with a fantastic cause behind it. Yeah. And that brings home for episode 14. As always, I hope you'll hit that like or subscribe button. Be sure to check me out on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. You can check out my movie reviews on Letterboxd. You can check out my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And as always, I hope you'll tune in next time when I go back to my bread and butter. That's right. I've got another movie from the 90s coming down the pipe. It's about time. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Scott Willis, and this has been the Movie Brewer Podcast. Podcast.